The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. As I'm sure you already know, this podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History magazine, and we're pleased to bring you a very special offer. Subscribe to BBC History magazine today, and you can choose a book worth up to £30. Choose from either Queens of the Crusades by Alison Weir, The Children of Ashen Elm by Neil Price, Agent Sonia by Ben McIntyre, or The Story of China by Michael Wood. Not only that, you'll also get every issue of BBC History magazine delivered direct to your door, all from just £22.45. To take advantage of this fantastic offer, visit our official online store at buysubscriptions.com forward slash history book. This promotion is only available for UK residents and while stocks last. You'll receive your book within 28 days of ordering. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today we've got the latest in our Everything You Wanted to Know series, in which we explore a subject through questions you've sent in on social media and popular internet search queries. We're speaking to Lauren Johnson about the Wars of the Roses, the 15th century clashes between the houses of Lancaster and York. Lauren is a historian, writer and heritage interpreter whose books include Shadow King, The Life and Death of Henry VI, and she's currently working on a biography of Margaret Beaufort, which is due to be published in 2021. Putting your questions to Lauren was BBC History Revealed production editor Kev Lotchen. Welcome to the podcast, Lauren. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. No worries. So this uh, episode, we're talking about the Wars of the Roses. And as is usual with our Everything podcast, it's a combination of top Google search queries and questions sent in by you, our readers. But where I'd like to begin is uh, one of the top Google searches, which might be a predictable, but what and when were the Wars of the Roses? So I wonder if you'd give us a, a as brief a chronology as you can for such an in-depth kind of topic and just set us where we are and what's going on. Um, yeah, even even when the Wars of the Roses was is a vexed question among historians. So uh, as far as I'm concerned, the Wars of the Roses is a civil war that goes on from around 1450 up until around 1485. So a good 30 plus years in which two rival dynasties, the household of York, which was which now has come to be symbolised by a white rose and the household of Lancaster, which has come to be symbolised by a red rose, fought against each other um, in various different complex and labyrinthine permutations. Um, But to keep it simple, that is what it is. It's a 30-year war between these two roses, hence the name Wars of the Roses. Excellent. And, you know, within this 30 years of war, there's a lot going on. There's a kind of a lot of battles, a lot of uh, the throne changes, uh, well, I say hands several times, but who are the key players in this who really should be aware of in the story? Well, if we try and keep it nice and simple and just go, okay, Lancastrians, Yorkists, because very annoyingly in civil wars, there are a load of people who keep changing sides. Um, To start with the Lancastrians, the person who is on the throne in 1450 is King Henry VI, uh, my shadow king buddy. And Henry VI has been king since he was nine months old. He is the only king of England also to be crowned king of France, because this is also the age of the Hundred Years' War. Um, 
And basically, the the moral of Henry VI's story is don't make a baby a king, because as great as Henry VI's line of Lancastrian forebears is, you know, his father is Henry V, this great warrior king, Battle of Agincourt, etc. Henry VI is not great. Um, he's very well-meaning. He loves peace, but he is just not a, not really a kind of steely individual like you need in a medieval king. Um, with the result that as time goes on, he is dominated more and more by different advisors around him. By 1450, the most important of those are his wife, Margaret of Anjou, who's been Queen of England for about five years by that point. She's a French princess. And uh, a man called Edmund Beaufort, Duke of Somerset, who is a distant relation of Henry VI and a kind of, I would say, probably a father figure to him. Uh, And the man who rather unfortunately has kind of been helping to rule France while the Hundred Years' War is being lost, so not a massively popular individual in England. So Henry, Margaret and Somerset, those are kind of the three most important Lancastrians at the beginning of the Wars of the Roses. On the Yorkist side, in the Yorkist corner with the White Rose, uh, we have Richard, Duke of York, is the uh, leading Yorkist at this point. He again (laughs) is another distant relative of Henry VI. You'll see there's a lot of people related to each other in this. Um, But crucially, the Duke of York is Henry's closest adult male relative by 1450, which means he kind of, he has his own claim to the throne, which actually some would argue is better than Henry VI. Um, He certainly, he wants a leading role in government. As time goes on, he starts to move into actually wanting to take the throne for himself. And uh, he has a a really big family of people who go on to inherit that claim to the throne, including his son, who becomes King Edward IV, this sort of sexy teenage warrior individual. Uh, Another son called George, Duke of Clarence, who's quite a a sort of difficult, feisty individual. And... uh, Richard, Duke of Gloucester, the youngest son, who becomes King Richard III later in the Wars of the Roses. So those are kind of the leading Yorkists, leading Lancastrians. The the complex thing with the Wars of the Roses is that we move through two, even possibly even three, we could say, generations. So the people who are most important at the beginning have kind of switched by the time we get to the end of the Wars of the Roses, by which point Richard, Duke of Gloucester, like I said, has become King Richard III. He is, um, the Yorkists have been challenged at various points by their own allies, including one who is crucial called Warwick the Kingmaker, who starts off a staunch Yorkist, who's really kind of the, um, the steel glove. No, wait, hang on, the other one. The steel fist <laughs> in the velvet glove of the Yorkist regime. Um, and uh, who ultimately tries to bring down Edward IV and, and fails. There's also uh, another leading Yorkist called Elizabeth Woodville, who marries Edward IV, is the mother of the famous princes in the tower who disappear <laughs> at one point in the Wars of the Roses. Um, and Elizabeth Woodville is probably opposed to Richard III. Uh, and then right at the end, as we get to 1485... Um, and the end of the the Wars of the Roses proper, we have emerging onto the scene someone called Henry Tudor. You know, the Tudors, who's ever heard of them? This um, kind of uh, Welsh-born individual who has spent most of his life in exile in France and Brittany, and whose mother, Margaret Beaufort, is related back through time to that Duke of Somerset I mentioned right at the beginning, and who has her own claim to the throne. So you can see that there's all of these people knocking around who have enormous amounts of potential, enormous amounts of ambition and self-interest, and probably the only one who sort of just wants everyone to get along and have a nice time is Henry VI. Everyone else, in one way or another, is out to get what they can. I mean, that's such a brilliant summary of what is a such a kind of like a complex chain of events in such a short space of time uh, and there's so much to unpick in there which i would like to come back to um one place i would like to go first is almost to the beginning and one thing you said is like now we we call it the wars of the roses so i mean this is something that is a very popular such quote it's like why do we know them as the wars of the roses and you know would they have would they have known that conflict as that at the time or would they have referred to it in a different way? 
Yeah, it's really interesting, the whole title of the Wars of the Roses, because in recent years, there's been a bit of a move against using that as the terminology for this war. Um, So, for instance, you know, in uh, popular historical fiction, Philippa Gregory has started calling it the Cousins War, and that's become quite popular. And you can see why, given the number of distant cousins who were involved. But I would say the Cousins War um, really has no relevance to the to that era of history. No one would have called it that. Whereas actually, although the title Wars of the Roses only comes in in the early 19th century, so it's pretty recent, the idea of two different dynasties represented by roses, I would argue, actually does go all the way back to the 15th century. Um, Edward IV, when he first emerges onto the scene, is known as the Rose of Rouen because um, he was born in Rouen in Normandy and he, his family symbol is the white rose. Uh, and there are ballads at the time in praise of him, you know, from the 1460s that address him as that and describe England as a garden with the rose being planted in it. So I think the imagery is there and it's picked up very early on. In fact, probably the most important person in terms of creating the idea of the Wars of the Roses is Henry VII, Henry Tudor, who um, is himself... Lancastrian, effectively, who marries a princess of the House of York called Elizabeth of York, thus uniting the roses. And Henry VII puts everywhere the Tudor rose, this combination of red and white roses. And again, there's a huge amount of uh, sort of written imagery from Henry's time, and particularly from when his son, King Henry VIII, takes the throne, in which uh, the combination of these two rival bloodlines in one peaceful, lovely family Uh, There's a huge amount of that imagery that's picked up later on. So I think actually calling it the Wars of the Roses is perfectly fine. Um, That actually kind of ties in neatly to something that uh, some of our Instagram users have asked, and it it ties into the Lancaster and York relationship. Uh, So this is uh, James Dowen and Zoe India, both on Instagram. They ask what the relationship of between Lancaster and York was like before the Wars of the Roses. I mean, is it a kind of... Montague Capulet kind of vibe or is 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 it quite congenial until this all breaks out? For a long time it, it is fairly congenial to be honest. Uh, it's one of the amazing things of 15th century history I think that King Henry VI despite being as I mentioned a baby when he inherits the throne is supported by basically the whole nobility including people who have a better claim to the throne than him of whom you could definitely include the House of York. Um And actually, Richard, Duke of York, is a loyal uh, supporter of Henry for many, many years until around 1450 when things start to go a bit pear-shaped. The one issue I would say that's longer term is that York's family do have a bit of a history of uh, rebelling against the Lancastrians. So in 1415, just before the Battle of the Agincourt campaign, let's call it, of King Henry V, Henry VI's father, um, a member of York's family is actually involved in a treason plot against Henry V, and that leads to the complete downfall of that family for a while. So I think probably that notion of the the Yorkist family having their own say in politics, having a kind of special place in the politics of the Lancastrian dynasty, definitely goes further back. And there are probably some questions about the loyalty of the the wider family, including Richard, Duke of York, as a result. Given you you, you kind of mentioned that Henry uh, VI, he comes on the throne as a nine-month-old, and that's probably not a great idea. Um, So on Instagram, Bushybeard Tom asked, was there any way that the Wars of Roses could have actually been avoided? And he he postulates, uh, other than Henry V not popping his cog so soon. (laughs) <laughs> uh, well, firstly, great name, Bushy Beard. Um, <laughs> I would say the death of Henry V is hugely important because effectively what happens is Henry V dies in the midst of fighting the Hundred Years' War. He's literally in France on campaign at the time. He never meets his son, in fact, because uh, his wife, Catherine Valois, gives birth to Henry VI in Windsor during the time Henry V is away. Um And what is difficult is that Henry V, being something of a control freak, while he is literally lying, dying in France of some sort of terrible camp fever, you know, pooping his guts out, is still trying to settle the future of England and France. He's still laying down rules for what he thinks should happen in the reign of his son, which includes saying things like, you should never return the prisoners of Agincourt to France, you should never make a deal with... um, 
his rival in France who goes on to become Charles VII, uh, various other stipulations that are made. And of course, if Henry V had lived, it's very likely that he would have changed those stipulations himself. He would have adapted to the changing circumstances. But instead, what happens is that Henry VI, this little baby who becomes a child, who becomes a teenager, who becomes an adult king, uh, grows up under this huge shadow of the legacy of his father, the legacy of warfare, these kind of rules that people around him are saying, well, you should stick to that because that's what Henry V wanted. And when Henry VI starts to emerge as an adult ruler in his own right and say, oh, we could just make peace, I mean, just as an idea, what about that? Then that causes some problems, I would say. Um, so yes, I think Henry V dying has a, a big impact on the what becomes the Wars of the Roses later, because certainly the Wars of the Roses, I would say is uh, the result of the end of the Hundred Years' War, the complete disastrous defeat of England in the Hundred Years' War. But I think also it's a feature of the personalities involved, and crucially, more than anyone else, the personalities of Henry VI and Richard, Duke of York. Well, uh, funny enough, so Ada Mohammed on Facebook, he, he asked a question that's very similar to what you just said. So he asked, was the apparent weakness of Henry VI as a rule the ultimate catalyst for the Wars of the Roses, or were other underlying reasons? And then, by example, he says... Did Richard of York harbour ambitions, which we talked a little bit about, and resentment, which latched onto Henry's weakness, making an excuse for rebellion? Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's my short answer to that. Uh, yes, exactly that. I think um, Henry VI was, like I say, he was just not the sort of king that was needed at that moment in time. He grew up never seeing what a king was. He had no examples in front of him. He had literally the examples of kings from history written in his books that he was reading, and that was it. <laughs> so uh, he had a real challenge, um, and as a result, he was not the king that, that he should have been. By contrast, Richard, Duke of York, and we see this actually in Richard, Duke of York's children as well, it was much more the sort of medieval king prototype, this person who had been to battle, who had experienced government, who had got married very young, who had moved into adulthood extremely young, as the nobility and royalty of this era usually did. Um, and I think also, partly because of this legacy of the sort of slight taint of the Yorkist line because of these questions of treason in the past, um, was very touchy about matters of personal honour and was very concerned that he should have a specific role in government uh, which kind of elevated him above other people around him. I think he was really aware of the fact that he was effectively Henry's heir for a very long time until Henry had a child of his own. Um, and I think just Henry and York, their two personalities were so at odds with one another. Henry, on the one hand, so peace-loving and compliant and afraid of confrontation. And then York, who's this very ambitious, very strident, very confrontational individual who is perfectly willing to use violence, in fact, to get what he wants. Uh, they just don't mesh at all. And the thing that happens throughout the whole 1450s, I would argue, is that York keeps pushing himself forward to have a leading role in government and Henry keeps trying to bat him away by one means after another. He keeps trying to pardon him, he keeps trying to be fair, he keeps trying to be kind, he keeps trying to, you know, make people literally hold hands and promise to be friends forever. But none of it works because that ju that just won't work with the Duke of York, and the Duke of York isn't going to let himself be sidelined. So ultimately, it's this it's this personality clash I think that is the most important factor in creating the Wars of the Roses. I mean, I wonder if we move on a bit to kind of the actual wars themselves. So one thing uh, Benjamin T H Russell asks on Instagram is how many years are actually spent fighting, and just to kind of carry it on, like which are the kind of the big battles we're kind of defining how the wars go. Yeah, it has been suggested that within 30 years of conflict, only if you added up how much actual fighting time there is in the Wars of the Roses, it would only make about one year. So one in 30. Um, and certainly you can see from 1450 through to 85 that there are peaks when there are periods of extreme violence, when there are a lot of battles happening within quite a short period of time. Um but then you have long periods in which battles might be happening quite far away. They're much lower level. They involve far fewer people. Uh, so the most important 
battle that kind of kicks off the Wars of the Roses happens in May 1455, which is the first Battle of St Albans. I mean, nothing in the Wars of the Roses is straightforward. They can't even just have one Battle of St Albans. They have to have two to confuse everyone. Um, And the reason that that Battle of St Albans is so important in 1455 is that it's the first time that Henry VI himself is kind of embroiled in the midst of a battle against the Duke of York. The Duke of York successfully manages to um, to seize control of Henry after the battle. He also manages to kill uh, his rival for power, the Duke of Somerset, and a number of other rivals who are around in the Lancastrian camp. Henry himself is injured in that battle, and I would argue that leads to a, a quite profound trauma from which I'm not sure he ever psychologically recovers. Um, and... After the First Battle of St Albans, you very distinctly have two rival parties and a, and a growing blood feud between them. Because instead of this just being a kind of like, oh, well, I sort of like this side, I'm kind of allied to the other one, this is all theoretical, suddenly it has become a matter of, uh, this person has killed my father, <laughs> I am not going to forgive him, I'm going to want violence and retribution. And that's what causes trouble, um, really, for a number of years after that. Strangely, though, there is actually a sort of period of peace. And then 1459 to 61, we get this burst of of violence, uh, a number of different battles, of which the most important is the Battle of Towton, um, which happens actually after the Duke of York has has already been killed in battle. And it's uh, when his son, who now has been acclaimed as King Edward IV or Edward Earl of March, as he is sometimes also known, Um, Edward steps up and fights a battle which is so decisive uh, and so bloody, possibly, you know, there are claims of 28,000 people being killed in the Battle of Towton. Uh, Edward IV steps onto the throne. Except again, because the Wars of the Roses aren't straightforward, (laughs) we have another period of sort of peace with a load of sort of vague battles and connivings going on up in the north of England that are uh, annoyingly not tremendously well documented. And then again, 1469 to 71, we get another flurry of, of violence and confusion as Edward IV is knocked off the throne by Warwick the Kingmaker. Henry VI, bizarrely, is brought back, um, sort of paraded about for a few months, um, having been a prisoner in the Tower of London in the interim. Uh, he's restored as king. Then, <laughs> again, Henry VI is knocked off the throne again. Edward IV comes back, wins a decisive victory in 1471 at Tewkesbury. And that's kind of, that's it, really, for the Lancastrians for the time being. Henry VI is almost certainly murdered in the Tower of London shortly thereafter. Margaret of Anjou is captured. Their child, who I, I mean, I've not even bothered mentioning up until this point, but their their son is killed fighting in the battle. Um, and really, that should have been the end of the Wars of the Roses, which is why it's so weird that we don't say, oh, yeah, the Wars of the Roses ended in 1471. No, no, <laughs> it goes on because by 1483, Edward IV dies. The prince is in the tower. His sons are proclaimed illegitimate. Uh, Edward IV's brother, Richard, Duke of Gloucester, seizes the throne. And yet again, we get this other, another sort of two-year period of violence, 1483 to 5, in which there are rebellions against Richard. There is confusion. And ultimately, there's the Battle of Bosworth in August 1485, at which Henry Tudor defeats Richard, kills him outright, which is the most important thing, and takes the throne. And thus, the Tudor dynasty is founded. Fantastic. Um, this is well my own question, actually. But would the Wars of the Roses have ended in 1471 if Edward IV had lived a bit longer? Ooh, that's a good question. I think um, possibly. It's really difficult. It depends on your perspective as to 1483, I think, and whether you think that Richard, Duke of Gloucester, um, really believed that he was under threat from the Woodvilles, which is what he said was the reason for him sort of taking control of the princes in the tower, whether you think he really believed that the princes were illegitimate, which again is what he said he believed, uh, or whether you think that really it was his personal ambition that was driving things at that point, or indeed a mixture of both, because it's entirely possible, I think, that Richard III was responding to a perceived threat that may actually have been a bit exaggerated. Um, I think if Edward IV had lived longer, then his sons would have been older by the time they were coming to power themselves. They're only, I think, 11 and 9 at the time that Edward IV dies. 
um, which again means you've got the prospect of a child king. And having lived through Henry VI, I think people are a bit anxious about that. Um, but I don't know. What I just wonder if Richard's concern about the Woodvilles and about being supplanted, much in the same way the Duke of York, his father, had been so anxious about not having a hold on power in the reign of Henry VI, I wonder if actually that would have sort of overridden everything else, almost regardless. Um, we're definitely going to come back to Richard III because you can't talk about Walls of Roses without him. But one person that I wanted to touch on very briefly first is, um, this is a Google query, why is Warwick called the Kingmaker? Because he keeps cropping up as almost this background player, but what's uh, how is he operating? Is he a political player, military, a bit of both? Yeah, bit of both. Warwick the Kingmaker is called that because... Um, he is considered to make Edward IV king. He's really the person who kind of in the late 1450s into early 1460s is the dominant power around the Yorkist. Um, he's Edward IV's cousin. And uh, although he doesn't sort of push his own claim to the throne, he very much uh, kind of, I would argue, I think he, he's sort of the spin doctor of the Yorkist dynasty and also their assassin. Um, it's It's been suggested that it's Warwick's entry into the um the wars that leads to the first battle of St Albans that leads to this ruthless assassination of um of their rivals he's someone who for instance while in charge of Calais is very happy to also commit various acts of piracy which endanger uh the entire nation um because it's best for him it's it's you know helps him pay his own soldiers so um yes he helps put Edward the 4th on the throne but the real thing that makes him a kingmaker probably is the fact that as i mentioned 1469 to 71 we have this weird period where Edward the 4th is pushed off the throne and Henry the 6th is put onto it and that is pretty much entirely Warwick's doing um it would not have been possible probably without Margaret of Anjou doing a lot of legwork uh, on the continent in France uh, and with various other European powers. But really, it's Warwick the Kingmaker who effectively is, is ruling the country during the time that Henry VI is king. Uh, and it's when Warwick is killed himself in battle at the Battle of Barnet uh, in 1471 that it becomes clear that, you know, the, the Lancastrian cause is probably going to collapse. And, you know, Warwick uh, is one of those characters who moves between the two camps. Um, it ties in something, uh, a question I've had from Karen Newman on Facebook, and she asked, on what basis did the aristocracy choose sides? So, you know, we've talked about Warwick, but did many others switch? And did any employ a kind of a similar approach to the Stanleys? Or they have, like, family members in both camps? Because everyone is so interrelated... I think, yes, you do get people sort of having members in, in different sides of the uh, the camps. Uh, so, for instance, one of Henry's leading kind of military commanders and political advisers is someone called the Duke of Buckingham, um, whose half-brothers are absolute zealous Yorkists. Um, and, and Buckingham is constantly trying to sort of find a middle way between these opposing factions and fails ultimately and, and dies in battle as a result. Um, I think, uh, and in fact, actually, the Battle of Northampton, where Buckingham dies, is a good example of people sort of switching because there's someone within the Lancastrian army at that battle called Lord Grey of Ruthin, who literally uh, switches sides during the battle. He um, he is on the Lancastrian side fighting for Henry VI, and then when the Yorkist troops approach him, uh, his men sort of lay down their weapons and help pull these Yorkist soldiers over the barricades and into the Lancastrian camp so that they win the battle. Um, and that's entirely because of a property dispute that Lord Grey has with a, with a rival duke who's very much on Henry's side. So I suppose the big thing that affects people's allegiances at this time, firstly, is a kind of, for the beginnings of the wars, certainly, an innate sense of kind of respect for the king, weirdly. Like, it takes a really long time for Henry VI to be deposed. And that is because the nobility are so determined to try and help him kind of get through <laughs> this, this Yorkist challenge and to find a middle way for it uh, until it becomes clear that can't happen. But, you know, for a long time there, basically, it's uh, the Duke of York, Edward IV, 
and Warwick virtually by themselves with hardly any noble allies and then the whole of the rest of the nobility support Henry VI. And I think as time goes on, as it becomes clear that Edward IV in particular is just going to be a better king, I think that's when things start switching. And as I say, when people start going, oh, well, I could get something out of this. You know, I could uh, maybe get a pardon from Edward. And Edward is extremely wise in, in giving a lot of pardons to people and giving a lot of rewards as far as he can to those who switch sides to him in the 1460s. So, yeah, it's a complex interplay, I'd say, of people's sort of uh, theoretical loyalty to a king and then their personal ambition and it's the Stanleys who kind of come to represent that. The Stanleys, Thomas Stanley, the, the kind of leader of the family, tries not to make a choice at all during the Wars of the Roses. He consistently just sort of turns up and hangs out at the edge of a battle um, and sort of waits till the last minute before doing anything, whereas his brother William Stanley is, is quite a staunch Yorkist. And I think if other people could have done that, they would have. I think the reason that we remember Stanley so much is actually because he was quite unusual, because people did tend to make a decision um, and fight. But yes, I would say switching sides became relatively common after 1461. And just, just uh, going back to the battles very briefly, but in, well, D.L. Withers on uh, Twitter, he asked, you know, in the heat of battle, how often did uh, people kill their own side, basically, in friendly fire incidents? Uh, you know, because when you're in, he says, when you're in a melee, everyone looks the same, talks the same, has the same armour, or no armour, and uh, they've just got this tiny badge on. Is that quite a common occurrence? Well, I would uh, slightly disagree about the tiny badge. I mean, this uh, is an era in which banners and heraldry are hugely important, uh, and people are literally moving under great big banners. There's a weird moment in the Battle of Bosworth when uh, fighting kind of just stops for a little period of time because one of Henry's advisers, the Earl of Oxford, uh, tells everyone to come back to the banner. He he draws them all back so that they don't get get lost effectively. Um, and I think sometimes we sort of, you know, we imagine oh, it would be very simple if it was you know French people because you'd hear them speaking in French. But actually, again, probably in the confusion, you wouldn't hear much speaking. You would just see the different colours, and you would recognise from the heraldry what was going on. Uh, the one example of friendly fire that there definitely is actually is related to this. It's related to the fact that a banner gets confused, which is the Battle of Barnet in 1471, which is fought in such an, uh, an extreme uh, mist, almost fog, that at one point uh, a bunch of um, Warwick supporters attack their own side because they mistake the heraldry, which is um, a magnificent star, for the sun in splendour heraldry of their enemy. So again, that is that is based on the fact that you see this great big banner in front of you and that it, it looks like the other side. Um, again, the fact that that's really the only time I've ever heard that mentioned in the Wars of the Roses, that incident of friendly fire, makes me suspect that in general it was pretty uncommon. So just to kind of read between the lines there, when you have these scats switching sides in battle, it's not a subtle thing. They've got the huge banners fluttering out. Like everyone can yeah. see that they've, or Stanley's uh, vacillating on the edges. Yes, and that's why uh, the standard bearer being killed and the standard falling is such a hugely important uh, moment of loss in a battle. Uh, and that's why Richard III rides down a hill to try and face off against Henry Tudor himself and manages actually to kill his standard bearer, but the standard is raised up by someone else. Because if you see your leader's standard falling, it's quite likely that your leader is dead too, and that therefore you should just give up and run away. The standard bearer typically would be quite close to the leader. Yes, yeah, they would. Um, we, we talked about how the aristocracy kind of like played sides with wars of the roses, but when it, for like, you know, the everyday people, like say a couple of people have asked questions along the line, DL Withers again on Twitter and uh, SK Shrews on Twitter as well. So how uh, involved would his, was the average citizenry? Uh, you know, if they were a peasant farmer, would they hope to miss it? Would they have noticed the changing kings or would they just continued kind of working the land? Yeah, it's a really good question. It's quite hard to have a concrete answer to it. My feeling is that... Again, we're kind of dealing with, on the one hand, a really big question of theoretical loyalty to a monarch who is divinely appointed 
um, and your literal day-to-day life. And I think most people's day-to-day life actually was determined by who their local power broker was. And usually that would be either a lord, uh, like it would be, oh yes, it's the Nevilles or it's the Percys, um, and also then it would be their retainers and the people in, in their employ who were administering justice and law and order in the local area, gathering taxes, gathering rents and so on. Um, and if you have a good lord, it means that you have a nice time and you're probably quite willing to go and fight for him. And if you have a bad lord, you might uh, do as happens to the Earl of Salisbury quite early on in the Wars of the Roses. Uh, you might just lynch him after a battle because you've got the opportunity. So um, I think that people's personal feelings about the local power holder are hugely important. And the other thing to say is, of course, depending where you live in the country, that's going to have a massive impact on how involved you are. If you're in London, uh, you are probably going to be quite involved in the wars because that is a place that has the machinery of of power within it. That's where the uh, people are kept imprisoned in the Tower, where they're crowned at Westminster, where they have parades through the streets of London, uh, where lots of uh, armour and weaponry is kept. So control of London is hugely important throughout the Wars of the Roses and therefore the loyalties of Londoners who tend to be Yorkist uh, are very important. If you're in the West Country funnily enough, or uh, right up in the the northeast of England. Again, you're going to have quite a hard time in the Wars of the Roses because there's a huge amount of local feuding between lords, which gets embroiled into this civil war, uh, which means that you're probably going to spend a lot of time fighting or, you know, getting your house burnt down at some random point. Um, Whereas you could be in other areas of the country, you know, maybe you're in the middle of Wales, perhaps, and uh, you could probably ignore the whole thing altogether. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. I just do not accept the notion of Tudor propaganda and Shakespearean drama writing being the things that influenced people's minds at the time about Richard. I really do think that there was a pre-existing sense that he had done something wrong in coming to power. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. Which this kind of ties into something that uh, another query we've had on Instagram from TL Day ninety five, which is were there refugees uh, from the Wars of Roses? And he specifically asked, or uh, did they flee abroad? Or I just said, did they were there refugees in general? I mean, would they have had to have gone abroad? Yeah, it's a really interesting word to use, actually, because it's one that doesn't tend to come up when talking about the Wars of the Roses. But the answer is yes, there definitely were. Um, For instance, the person who goes on to become the most important uh, victor of the Wars of the Roses, Henry Tudor, is a refugee. He spends 14 years, half of his adult life, uh, on the continent, effectively sort of a in a weird kind of hostage prisoner, semi-welcome prince kind of situation. Um, And he gathers to him a court of people that is, you know, numbers into the hundreds. Hundreds of people flee from England in the wake of um, Buckingham's rebellion against Richard III in 1483. And they go to Henry and they live with him and they become, firstly, the army that comes back and defeats Richard at Bosworth. And secondly, many of them become the leading advisers that Henry trusts when he takes power, because, of course, he doesn't know anyone in England. When he comes back, he knows his mother, and that's basically it. Um, so he trusts those people who had been in exile with him. But I would say they were refugees because they were political exiles. Uh, and it's a really interesting reframing, I think, of that to say, yes, there were. I feel like we should probably move on to Richard III. Ah, uh, we gotta. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, what's your view of Richard? Uh, well, my view of Richard is not tremendously positive. Um which gets me into trouble sometimes. <laughs> uh, effectively, I would say of Richard III, he is very similar to a lot of other 
noble people in his time. But the reason he has such a bad reputation is that I would say he is worse (laughs) than many of them. Um, For instance, he and his brother, George Duke of Clarence, declare their own mother-in-law legally dead so that they can take her lands, which I think is not the nicest thing to do. Uh, Richard also, before he becomes king, uh, intimidates a woman in her 60s by threatening to march her off to the north of England in the midst of winter in order to get hold of her lands and the lands of her son, who is at that point uh, in exile or a refugee, let's say. Uh, And personally, uh, obviously you have an entire podcast series that explores Richard and the Princess in the Tower, uh, but I would suggests that it is extremely likely that the princes in the tower died on Richard's orders, probably not by his hand, and that his involvement in their death was suspected from extremely early on. And that's why we see... So Richard is crowned on the 4th of July, 1483. We see risings against him in actually in June and July, then onwards in August, and there is an enormous rebellion against him by the autumn. So, you know, there is a resistance to him. There is a sense that there is something not quite right about the means by which he takes power and perhaps who he is as a person. Yeah, he's a fascinating character. And as you just mentioned, we do have a mini-series all about the Princes and Tower, and I will put a link to that in the show notes uh, so you can listen to that at home. Um, on, On Richard III... Jarete on Twitter asks, did Richard III's disability affect how he was seen by society or the royal court during his life, or was that Tudor Shakespearean propaganda? This is an area that is so frustrating because it would be brilliant to be able to answer that more fulsomely, and we can't really, because strangely, no one really mentions Richard's scoliosis, which we now know he had because uh, his skeleton has been uncovered. It has been found to have scoliosis definitively, uh, while, you know, um, the terminology that would be used by Shakespeare or maybe Thomas More um, in the 16th century of, you know, him having a hunchback, that sort of terminology, you know, we shouldn't use. And indeed, we can't be completely certain how much the scoliosis would have affected his physical appearance. But it does seem like uh, it's fair to say that he had visibly one shoulder higher than the other. And interestingly, that is something that is written about him uh, by someone called John Roos um, in the 1490s, early 1490s, I believe, although he is writing about Richard much earlier than that, uh, who mentions that he that Richard III has one shoulder higher than the other. And for a long time, that was taken as being, yeah, just, oh, that's Tudor propaganda, that's nonsense made up by, by old John, because he also says some things that are completely bananas about Richard, you know, being in his mother's womb for two years and emerging with teeth and hair, which I think probably he didn't you know, the balance of probability. But like I say, it has subsequently been discovered that that specific area of uh, John's writing was correct, that Richard did have um, scoliosis that would, would have been visible. The thing is, is I am not aware of anyone at the time commenting on Richard's scoliosis. Um, it's possible that it you know it wasn't enormously visible all the time it's possible that you know this is an era when actually padded shoulders are quite in fashion um and maybe armor might be you know specially manufactured in such a way that you wouldn't be able to see uh that certainly he is someone who is fighting in battles from his early to mid teens um so i and he is described in fact even by people who are very negative about him when they're describing the the battle of bosworth for instance it's almost unanimous that people say you know he fought bravely uh he was a, a noble warrior um so there is a definite sense of him as a fighter and you know maybe we could say well psychologically was he so keen to prove himself militarily because uh he had this disability and he wanted to prove himself the equal of anyone else we can posit that i, I mean we just don't know is the honest answer. And it's, yeah, it would be brilliant to be able to say more about people's perceptions of him based on that, but we can't currently. Another question linked to perceptions of Richard III comes uh, from Facebook from Ian Hillers, which is, um, I always wondered how citizens reacted to the deaths of the princes in the tower and why there was never a revolt against, well, as they suggest, a clear usurper as Richard III. So was there any kind of initial 
reaction to the kind of disappearance of the princes. Yes. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, sorry, I missed their name, but this person said um, that why wasn't there a revolt? Well, the answer is there was. <laughs> there was a revolt within a matter of months and there was another revolt within two years, which actually killed Richard. Um, so I would say, again, this is, for me, part of the reason that I just do not accept the notion of Tudor propaganda and Shakespearean uh, drama writing being the things that influenced people's minds at the time about Richard. I really do think that there was a pre-existing sense that he had done something wrong in coming to power. Um, We see, like I mentioned, right in that summer of 1483, at the time that Richard himself is coming to power, there are plots in London to try and rescue the princes in the tower, to rescue their sisters, the princesses who were in sanctuary at Westminster. Um, A number of people are executed, in fact, for their involvement in those plots. Uh, We see Margaret Beaufort colluding with Elizabeth Woodville, the mother of the princes in the tower, and actively bringing Henry Tudor into this uh, rebellion that happens with Richard's leading advisor, the Duke of Buckingham, in it. I mean, I just think there is so much there that suggests people believed Richard had killed them at the time that... um, yeah, I don't think it's fair to say it was a creation later on. I really do think people believed that he had done away with them. So one other thing uh, with this story so far, it seems a very uh, kind of like male-dominated narrative. So can we talk about uh, some of the women in the story? And yes, please. <laughs> so first off, uh, a question from Joe Pierce on Twitter, which is how did the women of the court influence what happened in this time? Um a lot, I would say. It, you're absolutely right in saying that sometimes the Wars of the Roses, frankly, it's just a sausage fest. It's it's just like, oh, Lord, so-and-so, Grimsby, you have come here from Master Gremlin of... You know, it just... It, at times, it feels so incredibly male. It's, it's absolutely not interesting. But one of the things that I love about this era is that there are enormously important women involved. It's just that for some reason, they have tended to be overlooked. Um, certain women have had a lot more attention than others, but not necessarily for the good. So, for instance, Margaret of Anjou, Margaret Beaufort and Elizabeth Woodville, with their varying different... Um, allegiances throughout the wars have had quite a lot of attention um but generally they're seen very negatively all three of them they're seen i think because they are held up as these unusual power players in a male dominated world it's they're seen as as weird a sort of maybe even a bit unnatural you know there's an early 17th century writer who basically accuses margaret beaufort of being a witch and you're like well where's that come from you know <laughs> that's complete nonsense And Margaret of Anjou to this day is still remembered as being this, you know, termagant virago, uh, which is grossly unfair, I would argue. Uh, But one of the things that for me is hugely important is that actually these women didn't exist in a vacuum. These men as well, they weren't, you know, they didn't spring from the earth. They came from mothers. They had sisters. They had daughters. Uh, They had women around them who were hugely important to them, who influenced them. Um, and who tried to protect them as much as the men were trying to protect their female family members. Uh, And it's one of the features of the Wars of the Roses, actually, that uh, women are given more opportunity to do that because of, I mean, it's a little bit technical, but effectively the way that the treason laws work in this era is that they are not supposed to affect the women involved in the Wars of the Roses. There is literally only one noblewoman who is attainted for treason in the entire Wars of the Roses, which is Alice, Countess of Salisbury, who is a Yorkist, who is accused in 1459 of plotting against uh, Henry VI and encouraging her menfolk to go and fight him. So encouraging the Duke of York... Um, and the Earl of Salisbury, her husband, and Warwick, her son, to go and fight. Uh, But every other woman is supposed to have land uh, that she has inherited protected, so it's not affected by a tainder, in which effectively all of your lands as a nobleman are taken away from you. That means that women are in a very unusual position of actually being able to protect their estates just because they are women. It also means in a number of cases that they are mistreated by various powerful individuals who try and take their lands by uh, illegal means and that we therefore have actually quite a lot of evidence of women fighting through the courts and sometimes physically fighting to try and protect their their territory, their lands and the tenants living on them. Um, 
So there's a lot of evidence there of women doing that. And uh, just to take Margaret Beaufort for a moment, because she's someone obviously I've worked a bit more on, uh, Margaret Beaufort has a mother and a mother-in-law, in fact, both of whom are duchesses, both of whom control vast swathes of land, both of whom are widowed as a result of the Wars of the Roses. In fact, Margaret Beaufort's mother is widowed multiple times. Um, and Margaret Beaufort watches those women when she's growing up. She is influenced by them. We know that she has a close relationship to each of them and that she would have seen their patterns of power, their patterns of household administration, which I know sounds deadly dull, but as I mentioned earlier, like household administration is basically good justice. It's, it's looking after the people who you employ and work on your lands. It's keeping their loyalty so that if you have to go to war, they're going to fight for you. So those things are hugely important. Uh, and I think because they're seen as maybe being a bit domestic, they've kind of been sidelined. But actually, it's all part of this, this rich tapestry um, and the domestic is political in this era, because where you live, you know, if you're living in the royal court, you have access to a king or queen. Uh, if you are uh, living in your castle in the middle of Northumberland, you have access to hundreds, maybe even thousands of people who are living on your land who might fight for you. So those two things shouldn't be divided. Public, private, domestic, political, men, women, they, they're all part of the same tapestry. I, I just want to hang around the character of Margaret Beaufort a minute. So this is a question from Jen M. Kerry on Instagram. And she asks, do popular depictions of exaggerate Margaret Beaufort's role in Henry's Rise? And how big a part did she play? Uh, I don't think her role in Henry's Rise has been exaggerated, actually. I think that she is phenomenally important because she is the person who is in England throughout the period that Henry Tudor is abroad. And crucially, she is the one in 1483 to 5, who, uh, during Richard III's reign, who is pushing for Henry to be included in the various different political machinations that are going on at that time. So she is the one who makes an, um, an alliance with Elizabeth Woodville, uh, which depends, in fact, on um, Henry Tudor marrying Elizabeth Woodville's daughter, Elizabeth of York. And that brings in a load of Woodville supporters, Yorkist supporters, Edward IV supporters to support Henry's cause. Also, we know that a number of people who are in Margaret's employ, of whom the most important is Reginald Bray, her receiver general, who's been in, in, again, household administration. He's been one of her administrators for decades by that point, so a really loyal servant of hers. He is one of the people who is literally just going all around the country, uh, raising money for Henry's campaign, getting people on side so that they will support him when he invades. Uh, likewise, Christopher Erswick, who is one of her chaplains. Um, and we see those people who have been in Margaret's employ actually go on to become leading figures of Henry's government because uh, they play such a key role in getting Henry on the throne in the first place. Of course, Margaret can't fight. No women in the Wars of the Roses that we know of actually go and fight in battle. Um, but she can do a huge amount in terms of raising money and making political alliances and kind of the, the propaganda and morale side of campaigning. Uh, she has a huge role to play. You mentioned that Margaret Beaufort was at one point maligned as being a witch. Um, this, I've had a question on Instagram as well from Katie Lady, which goes back to Yaquesa Woodville um, and what her role in the war was, but also was she a witch? Because I believe that was a popular accusation levied against her. Yeah, blooming witches, eh? <laughs> um, I mean, firstly, it depends if you believe in witches, doesn't it? <laughs> Let's just be realistic for a moment. Uh, could she be a witch? I would argue probably There's not. also something um, about a water god at one point as well. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, don't get me started. Um, what we do know about Jaquetta Woodville, the mother of Elizabeth Woodville, is that Warwick the Kingmaker, during the time when he's trying to bring down the Woodville family and bring down Edward IV, um, one of his servants accuses Jaquetta of sorcery, I think specifically image magic, so creating images of Warwick and the king and queen and then melting them so that uh, those people lose their potency, which, funnily enough, is an accusation that's made against one of Henry VI's aunts many years earlier, who's another dominant woman. Um, and I would say it's not an accusation ever made about Margaret Beaufort in the 15th or indeed, as far as I'm aware, 16th century. It's something that seems to be invented by this one particular antiquarian who's trying to get everyone to love Richard III. And of course, you know, since in order to love Richard III, you have to hate Margaret Beaufort. He, uh, 
he, he puts that accusation in. Um, yes, I think sometimes we have a bit of an inflated idea about accusations of witchcraft that, you know, it was a, a sort of get-out-of-jail-free card if a, a powerful woman annoyed you. Uh, but to be fair, as I've mentioned, there are at least two women there who were accused of it. And by the time we get into the Tudors, of course, Anne Boleyn is is kind of connected with sorcery in the accusations of treason surrounding her. So it does seem like those accusations stick to women more. Although weirdly, there is also some suggestion that George Duke of Clarence had an involvement with, a, I think, a necromancer at the time he was committing treason. So it's not completely gendered, um, but it, it does seem to be levied at women more than men. Well, so on that, Katie Lady again asked uh, what turned the Duke of Clarence against his brother, and I assume it's not uh, some dark arts. Well, not as far as we know, but <laughs> maybe. Um, again, I suspect ambition, ambition and irritation. I think Clarence wanted more power and more authority than he was given. I think he was aware that... Uh, that that power actually sort of lay in his grasp if he could move Edward out the way slightly. Um, and I think also his uh, sort of moving towards trying to take power for himself and his getting involved in, in sort, of, uh, sort of perverting the course of justice and various other things that he, he does that cause problems for Edward uh, coincide with the death of his wife. And there's a possibility that there's just extreme grief at play there it's kind of it's actually again just a Tudor parallel we see it with Thomas Seymour later on that you you get someone who's always been a little bit politically unstable and then they lose what may have been a steadying force in their life in in their wife uh, and they just go completely off the rails Um, again so you know maybe an argument for women having more political importance than we often tend to give them Um, very a quick read, Duke of Clarence. Is there any truth in this notion that he dies by drowning in a butt of Malmsey wine? Well, it does seem to come up quite quickly as a suggestion. It's, it's there, I think. He dies in 1478, and I think it's mentioned by certainly continental chroniclers from memory uh, not long after that. Um, it's weird. There is In the 15th century, when people are talking about how someone was mysteriously done to death, they always seem to say the person was either squashed between two feather beds, drowned in wine, or had a poker put up their bum. There's always one of the three emerges, yeah. In, in terms of the women in the story, are there any kind of uh, other women other than the kind of these kind of these famous names who we should know a bit more about? Yes, definitely. I mean, there's loads. Uh, one would be Alice, Duchess of Suffolk, for instance, who's a hugely important power player to the extent um, that at one point the the Commons in Parliament try to have her uh, done for treason, basically because she has too much influence over Henry VI and Margaret of Anjou. Uh, she is a woman who um, is married to the Duke of Suffolk, one of Henry VI's leading advisers, and is clearly extremely trusted by him because in his last will, and I think some advice he gives his son, he, he refers to the fact that his, you know, above all the earth, my singular trust is most in her. Uh, again, men and women partnerships, you know, a much bigger force than we sometimes realise. Uh, and intriguingly, she's another one who switches sides, that she initially is very much a Lancastrian, like I said, hugely associated with Henry and Margaret. And then she switches to the Yorkists quite early on. I think she realises that that is where things are going to uh, work out better for her. She marries her son to Edward IV's sister. And ultimately, she becomes the jailer of Margaret of Anjou, which must have been quite awkward, I think. The person who used to be your queen and best friend that you are now imprisoning. Um, so she is one. Uh, Alice, Countess of Salisbury as well, I mentioned, who definitively we know was helping the Yorkists to plot um, Lady Hungerford is a very interesting one who's a, a West Country uh, power broker, effectively, who, again, Richard III is trying to get his hands on her lands and she very strongly resists legally, illegally, and even in her will by trying to stipulate what her uh, grandchildren should do in terms of their, their future political loyalties. Um, so there are a huge number. Um, I have so many more questions, but uh, we should bring this towards a uh, conclusion. So one thing I quickly want to tap on is the kind of the Battle of Stubbins Bridge. What can you tell us about that? Because I understand it, it's a big food fight. Yeah. Uh, well, firstly, it's nonsense. The story goes that 
at Stubbins Bridge, which I think is in Lancashire, um, or maybe on the border between Lancashire and Yorkshire. Uh, forgive me for my geographical ignorance. Um, the story is is that the Yorkist and Lancastrian armies were fighting each other. They ran out of ammunition and they started throwing, you, you know, Yorkshire puddings and black puddings at each other. Um, I mean, that alone should maybe tip you off that this is not entirely a trustworthy story. Um, but as I think, I think it emerges at some point late in the 20th century in order for the people of Stubbins to throw pies at each other. Uh, certainly, it, there is no reference to Stubbins at all in any 15th century source I've ever read. Um, and I think it's part of this wider confusion that people seem to have between Yorkist and Lancastrian, which are dynasties, which are uh, ruling families who have lands scattered across England, Wales, Ireland, France, um, on the one hand. And then on the other hand, Yorkshire and Lancashire, who have very specific geographical boundaries. Um and I should say that Yorkshire and Lancashire are not as clear-cut in their loyalties during the Wars of the Roses as we might imagine. There are a lot of uh, northern Lancastrians uh, and there are a lot of southern Yorkists as well. So um, basically, Stubbins Bridge is nonsense. That will bring on a, a tangent to a different query entirely, but what's the kind of the continental perspective on the Wars of the Roses? Oh man, that's a huge question. Um, <laughs> as you would kind of expect from the fact that this this civil conflict is born out of the Hundred Years' War and that both Henry and Margaret of Anjou have um, continental connections that are very broad, uh, not just in France, as you might imagine, but uh, Portugal, Denmark, I think, the uh, various German states, Spain... Uh, they have a, a huge number of different relations in Europe. Uh, there's actually a, a major European angle on the Wars of the Roses, I think, that often gets left out, of which the most important, I would argue, we kind of, we, we're sort of familiar with, oh yeah, Henry Tudor was on the continent. We sort of know that. We kind of remember that Edward IV spent a bit of time at the Burgundian court without quite knowing where that is. Um, but the really crucial period of time, I would say, is the 1460s, when Henry VI has been knocked off the throne and is interchangeably in exile, wandering forlorn around the northwest of England and in prison. His wife, Margaret of Anjou, and, and their son, Prince Edward, uh, are spending time basically travelling around various different courts um, uh, in France and around it, trying to stoke Lancastrian support sending ambassadors to various different European powers, serving as a kind of Lancastrian court in exile, uh, spending huge amounts of time and effort and diplomatic initiative in creating alliances that they hope will bring Henry back to power. Um, and it's interesting, actually, that Margaret of Anjou, we know from continental sources, very early on suspects that there is a division between Edward IV and Warwick the Kingmaker and tries to get King Louis of France to, to help her to make some sort of alliance with Warwick that will lead to Edward's overthrow, which ultimately is what happens. So um, the European angle is hugely important. And also, I think, uh, kind of by ignoring it, we've obscured... Uh, Margaret of Anjou's enormous amount of political cunning. I guess to wrap up, I mean, I'm going to do a Google search two for one here, which is when did Wars of the Roses end? And perhaps more difficult, who won? Um, I suppose actually the two are completely interconnected. I would say, just to keep things simple, let's say that the Wars of the Roses ended around Bosworth. So around 1485, when Henry Tudor takes the throne. With hindsight, we can say that was the moment because we know the Tudor dynasty goes on to rule right through until 1603. Um, at the time, I would say it was probably a lot less clear cut than that. And we see uh, two pretenders come and uh, invade England and Lambert Simnel and Perkin Warbeck and very much actually represent a real threat to Henry VII, which goes on for over a decade after Bosworth. Even you could arguably stretch when the Wars of the Roses ends right into the reign of King Henry VIII because there's still a lot of Yorkists around at that time who have claims to the throne, who represent a sort of rival potential dynasty. Um, but I would tend to say 1485 is around when it ends and that therefore the winner is uh, Henry Tudor. 
Now, is he a Lancastrian or a Yorkist? That's the difficult question, because uh, through his mother, Margaret Beaufort, he has a Lancastrian claim to the throne, but it's absolute rubbish. I mean, it's arguably illegitimate. It's uh, incredibly distant. It's through a woman, although, to be fair, the Duke of York's claim is also through a woman. Um, And effectively, the reason that he is considered the victor is because he he is king by conquest. You know, the same as William the Conqueror. He, he wins the kingdom in a great big battle, kills his enemy, and that at the time is seen as, as God shining a light on him and choosing him as the future. Um, but he chooses to marry a Yorkist princess because he knows he needs the support of the Yorkists. His children all, of course, therefore inherit both sides of the dynasty. So Henry VIII specifically, uh, Henry VII's son, specifically is acclaimed as the the union of these two roses, uh, as someone who has the bloodline of of the rival families in his veins. And his sister, Margaret, uh, who goes on to become Queen of Scotland, and ultimately it's through her dynasty we get the Stuarts coming to power in England and in Scotland. Again, she is a product of both York and Lancaster. So you could say, I think, that ultimately peace wins. Henry VI was right all along. Everyone just needed to hold hands and be friends. That was Lauren Johnson. Her biography on Margaret Beaufort is due to be published in 2021. Lauren also appears as one of the historical experts in our podcast miniseries exploring the disappearance of the princes in the tower. You can hear that at historyextra.com forward slash princes. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Newett and Jack Bateman. Tune in tomorrow to hear the real history behind the brand new period drama, Bridgerton. Bridgerton.